Hi everyone, welcome to Borderline Jurisprudence. I'm Kostya Garibet and as always I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Basha Ketkin on the line from Edinburgh. Hi Bashak, how are you doing? What's new? Hi Kostya, um, I've been well. Uh, the weather in Edinburgh uh, is not great, but we're hanging in there with the uh, hope that spring is just around the corner. How is it in Groningen? Yeah, not yeah, not much different really. Uh, weather, as always, February weather, not so great. March weather, not so great. Not so great. <laughs> yeah, so spring is not anywhere in sight still, but but at least I am very excited about our today's episode, which really shines bright. Definitely. So international law is obviously not something that interests only lawyers. Political philosophers, moral theorists, and of course sociologists see it as a fascinating subject for a study. Yet here some problems begin because when things get inter or multidisciplinary, questions of methodological rigor immediately come to the surface. Today we are talking to Dr. Tamson Page, senior lecturer at Deakin Law School, about what it means to do multidisciplinary research, what makes it good, and what things look like when we look at international law from the outside, and also, and of course, queering international law as a method. Dr. Tamson Page, welcome. Thanks for thanks for having me here. It's like I'm really excited to be here. It's a real honor to be invited, and I'm really I've looked over the questions you sent, and I'm really excited for this discussion on sociology, queer theory, and international law. You've described yourself on more than one occasion as a fully trained sociologist and a fully trained lawyer at the same time, and you've also described your work as sociology of international law, in which law is the subject of a sociological study. And of course, interdisciplinarity has been, and definitely still is, a very hot topic, but there seems to be as many interdisciplinarities as there are scholars. And now I'm going to bombard you with questions because I'm a dilettant. What is your take on interdisciplinarity? Are there any particularities of sociology of law? If you're doing sociology of international law, is it really interdisciplinary or is it just sociology? Or what do you do differently than lawyers? And for the love of all good things in the world, what does qualitative sociological method mean? Okay, I'm going to try and answer these in order because I'm an orderly person, which relates to my years as a chef, very, very ordered as a result of that. Um, and my take on interdisciplinarity is that most people who say they do interdisciplinarity actually just don't. Um, interdisciplinarity is literally when you are doing two separate disciplines that are fully blended into the one piece of research work. It would be where you are doing, in my case, complete sociological analysis and framing at the same time as a full doctrinal legal analysis or a legal theory analysis at the same time in tandem. Um, and most people who say they do interdisciplinary work, I would classify it as cross-disciplinary. So they have got their primary discipline that they are writing for and that they are working in, and they borrow pieces of other disciplines and pull them across into mm -hmm. their discipline but they don't they don't they, they don't fully blend them they're they're picking pieces or they're working in teams that are multidisciplinary um which means that you've got the lawyer doing the law stuff the sociologist doing the sociology stuff the economist doing the, the theology stuff 
um, because anything that starts from a starting point of humans are rational is clearly theology and nothing <laughs> else. Um, and that has its place, but let's not pretend it's anything other than a faith-based discipline. Um, and from there, that's all really important, but it's not interdisciplinary. It's multiple people working together across in different disciplines in the same project. And so whoever's the lead on each paper their discipline is going to be the prominent one in that paper because they're the one primarily responsible for that paper. And so it's multidisciplinary. Interdisciplinary work is actually really rare because it requires you to be to be doing twice as much work. And it gets a bad rap because most people think that you're doing half as you're half assing both disciplines and pulling them together. Mm. When actually it requires you to do a full be fully across the literature in both disciplines, be trained in both disciplines completely, which means understanding the history of the theories you're using from both disciplines, the methods you're using from both disciplines, but also how to communicate to both disciplines. So, which kind of moves into the sociology of law, soci you know, particularities, um, and the sociology of international law question, they kind of blend in that if I'm writing for sociologists. I'm writing a very different paper than if I'm writing it for lawyers because sociologists, what sociologists care about more than anything else is data integrity. That's what we care about the most. Lawyers, in my experience, don't give a fuck about data integrity. They don't <laughs> even know what it means. They have no clue. Um, they, they will. I have seen empirical legal studies with data where they've published data that's entirely invalid because they've said they've asked all these control questions for self-bias control questions and then not published the results of the control questions. Or they've said that they've adjusted for the biases identified in those control questions, but they're not said how they've adjusted. And those sorts of things, they have no data integrity. There's no chain of here's how we managed our data. Here is how we did it all and all of those things. And so if I'm writing for lawyers, I'll kind of say, look, I'll put a brief thing together that demonstrates I have data integrity and how I did it, but I'll focus on what it means. Mm. Um, whereas it, for a sociology audience, I'll be like, okay, here's the problem. Here's my hypothesis. Here is my method that I'm using. Here's my data. Here is, and the data is here, but also here is how I've handled that data to make sure that I haven't undermined any of it. And now let's discuss what it means. And so they kind of take up all here is why the data isn't invalid, actually takes up the most space in a paper for sociology. Um, and I don't write much for sociologists uh, because I, I'm trying to write for lawyers because as far as I'm concerned, sociologists mostly agree with what I'm saying and they know what I'm saying um, and they don't need to hear it. Mm -hmm. But lawyers don't. Lawyers are the ones who benefit from hearing about what I'm looking at in terms of how law impacts the world, taking law from the abstract or the theoretical or the detached and looking at the broader concrete impacts. And I'm not talking about that this case got decided this way and this meant this for these people. I'm talking about the, okay, we've made this illegal. How does this then play out in people where it's never going to see a courtroom? Does it change behavior? Those sorts of societal shaping things so classic example of that with sociology of international law was the piracy work that i did in way back when somali piracy was at its peak 
and looking at there was all of these discussions about well what is the law what how do we understand the unclos on piracy and this and I'm like actually no one actually telling me what this law is doing or how we're using it and so I did a whole bunch of field work over in um Seychelles and I sat in and I observed pi- trials of pirates I spoke to key people doing prosecutions lead investigators all of these things saying what are you doing with this law and the conclusion was that the criminal law basically does nothing it's useless hmm. from a enforcement point of view but what it did was provide as a concrete foundation to say this is wrong we need to do things to fix it and it provided this political impetus to create structures to address the the problem and so that's actually really interesting and important because like lawyers need to hear that that's what's happening but sociologists go yeah of course um because we kind of already know that and it's and for a sociologist it was more about having the funding and the time to get the data to demonstrate it rather than the conclusion so yeah sociology of law um peculiarities of sociology of law will depend on whether or not you're writing for sociologists or you're writing for lawyers. Um, If you're writing for lawyers, it's really about how does the law shape society. If you're writing for sociologists, it's about how does the legal profession behave and why are lawyers so awful as a general (laughs) rule. Um, And so it's about looking at how does the legal profession in practice play out and what does that do to lawyers. And because I'm writing for lawyers i'm looking at what does the law do um rather than how do, what the lawyers do and how does this impact well-being of lawyers and those sorts of things so um and in answer to your question of like is what i'm doing really interdisciplinary or is it just sociology um i would say it's just kind of hardcore sociology but it's also not at the same time because i have to say across all of the literature from law um quite quite frequently, I will have to be able to demonstrate that I've done a solid doctrinal analysis or to say this is what the law is that I'm then doing a sociological study of. Um, So at the same time, it is because I'm having to often do a lot of stepping through the legal analysis to get to a point where I can get the lawyers to listen to the sociological analysis. So a lot of it is actually just about knowing, for me, the interdisciplinary is knowing how to communicate what I'm saying to legal academia and the legal profession and um because there's international law sometimes a lot of civil servants and diplomats um but at its core i would say i'm i'm doing hardcore sociology with some bells and whistles but i know how to communicate to lawyers but that does at times make it actually properly interdisciplinary and and what that means though in terms of what am i doing differently than lawyers Lawyers, as I said, who most of them who are doing what they would call socio-legal work are doing cross-disciplinary stuff. They're pulling methods that they don't properly understand the history of, usually, not always, um, into a legal environment and doing studies that often kind of are, are, are pulling it out of context, often play out differently than they would if with the full history because that I see a lot of lawyers who say they're doing socio-legal study define themselves by the method they use which is really like doing socio-legal work define themselves by the method they use which is really really bad because method is a tool in a toolbox um you have lots of methods 
and you pick the one that's right for the study you're doing with the hypothesis you have. You don't shape a question around a method. You, you, you pick a method around a question. And so it's really concerning watching lawyers learn a method from a different discipline, pull it into law, and then define all of their scholarship around I do X method. So what? Um, it's it so it ends up you it ends up kind of being a hammer in search of nails rather than here's a problem. How do we address it? And in what does qualitative sociological methods mean? Okay, so there's I've worked across lots of different sociological methods, and the qualitative is the difference between quant and qual. Um, quant is your numbery statistics stuff, and quant data is really really good at telling you what is happening really, really good at telling you what. Um, so it's important. It's just not what I do. Um, because it's the le what is happening is the less interesting question for me. Qualitative data is much more kind of nuanced and wordy. It's fuzzier because it's inherently subjective. It's not pure numbers. Quant data has a lot of subjectivity to it as well, depending on how you crunch the numbers and do the statistics. So anyone who tells you that quant data isn't subject to biases and things like that is either lying or not very bright. Um, but qual data, you have to kind of position about how am I reading this? What questions am I asking? Who am I asking the questions to? But what qual data, qualitative data is really good at showing you is why things are happening. And for me, that's the more interesting question. But in terms of method, I've done it with critical discourse analysis of both public public meeting, like public records. So in terms of Security Council meeting transcripts, I've done it through observation studies, which was piracy sitting in courts, court sitting in courtrooms watching piracy trials, um, interview data, which was the interviews with Somali piracy, but also my current work we're on in law and literature where I'm interviewing the authors of the books to talk about the issues that are raised and why they were discussing them in their book and how they were framing them and why. Um, I'm doing the critical, uh, that also comes across as a, con as a conceptual discourse analysis where I'm looking at popular fiction as a social text that mm -hmm. isn't empirical data, but it gives us conceptual data about how the society that produced this text sees the world um, by putting it in the context of when it was of how when it was created and what that means and the themes it raises. So you can do surveys, you can do that. So it basically it means I've worked across lots of different sociological methods. Um, they're always qualitative because I I don't like doing stats. Um I've supervised more than I've worked across. So I've supervised a really great thesis from an honors student who's now doing her PhD elsewhere on a fa fabulous scholarship um, that she was, you know, just thoroughly deserved and um, where it was a content analysis and she was looking at gender neutral sta um, statute drafting and applications of gender neutral statute drafting policies in Australian legislation. Um, and so that was literally just put it, finding key words around gender and finding them in statutes and how they appeared and looking at how does that then compare to the policy of drafting statutes in a gender neutral way. So it's there are lots of different methods you can use. And what's important about methods is that know what question you're asking and then work out what's going to be the best one to help you answer it. And sometimes you'll do multiple methods on the same question and then do 
a metasynthesis or of some description of looking at all of these together to kind of blend it to to look at does this tell a bigger picture when we look at different facets and aspects and so metasynthesis is another qualitative sociological method that actually I was the first person in legal sociology to ever use it and it was developed from medical sociology so yeah I'm <laughs> method girl um literally I'm method girl and because method is literally it's the how question how are you going to do your research it's why I also lose my mind in confusion at when lawyers get in get a bee in their bonnet about what do you mean I have to talk about method and I'm like literally you just need to tell me how you're doing your research how did you do it that's all I need to know just a how question if what you did was read some theory books and then read some and read some legislation and interpret it through the lens of that theory with some factual contextual and with some factual context of when the legislation is being applied that's cool just say that that's what we call a theory informed doctrinal analysis not that complicated um but lawyers yeah. seem to lose their ever-loving minds over this idea of what do you mean I have to have a method? I, I love this I idea. I, I love this idea of like superhero method girl. And I think the perfect uh, anti-hero, the perfect villain would be um, Danish Sheikh, who yeah. actually just yesterday, I think, or today uh, defended his PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I know I know Dinesh. Um, I don't know him well. I get along with him. But I, I sit there and look at the popularity of that video and I just get confused. I'm like, yeah, it's funny, but like, why is there this angst? I don't understand. Um, but the advantage of that is that I also end up working with lawyers where I come in. Um, I've got a paper with a colleague um, at the moment that's under review that's on Australian constitutional law. I know nothing about Australian constitutional law apart from the fact we have a constitution. There's something about an implied freedom of political communication and there's a there's a section in the constitution that allows the federal government to bribe the states with money to do what the federal government wants. But that's about all I know about Australian constitutional law. But I know the method and I could teach him the method and make sure what how we'd done the analysis was solid and and I kind of I'll be I'm on that paper because I wrote the methods section. I did all the checking to make to show him how to do it, how the analysis is done. And so it means I look like I have a much broader expertise than I really do <laughs> because I'll step in and help people with that method mm. at a point that's substantial enough that I get an authorship. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I also immediately thought of that, of that legendary video and the anxiety. And I think the anxiety is quite justified because, I mean, methodology is scary. And, uh, and I have a follow up, actually, on, on this. So you seem to imply kind of like a relatively high bar for what counts as an interdisciplinary research in law and even who might be eligible for doing that. And if I understand you correctly, there is a problem with what lawyers claim they do like with your reference to socio-legal research so i'm wondering if you could give maybe an example of a proper interdisciplinary research in law in your understanding of the concept and whether there is indeed a question of positioning involved here and another thing that i'm thinking is is the bar somewhat lower if you don't claim to be interdisciplinary but rather try to put law into a perspective that is not like lawyerly in a typical way. And I'm asking this as a legal philosopher who never had any training in philosophy, you know, so I'm quite anxious here. 
Yeah, so I think I think that the 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 this was actually best summed up in a conversation I had with Douglas Gilfoyle of uh, lawyers are like the Borg. They find things that they like and assimilate it into themselves and just make it one of the part of the Borg. Um, so as a nerd, that resonates with me nicely. But so what we what we have there is that lawyers think they're doing interdisciplinary work, but they're doing cross-disciplinary work. And it's, it's a question of nuance. And as I said, I'm a very ordered person, so I like to be precise. Um, and I would say even most of my work isn't truly interdisciplinary because I'm doing basically hardcore sociology, but written for lawyers. Um, and But I think the best, the best evidence of um, interdisciplinary work in law that I've seen is most legal historians. Legal historians are really good at this because they're historians and they know, but they're also lawyers as well. And they are writing as historians for lawyers, but because they're, because what they're doing with the analysis of the historical documents requires them to apply, not just an understanding of historical method, like historicism, but also just doctrinal analysis, they end up without knowing to doing very, very good interdisciplinary work. And I mean, I have some bias here, but some of the best stuff I'd say on that would be from a legal history perspective would be Rob McLaughlin. Um, and I have some bias because he's a mentor of mine. He went out on the limb went and to make sure I got into my MPhil program. He's been a huge support for me professionally. So I'm aware of my bias. And being aware of my bias is a huge part of um, being a sociologist. Um, so, yeah, I think the best interdisciplinary scholars in legal stuff are good legal historians because of that, because it's also, they fit together neatly. It's easy to, it's an easy area to do interdisciplinary work because they blend really well. They blend really well because you're still looking at the law you're just looking at the law as it was and then using that as a building block for what's happening now. And so you're not, they're not super detached in the way that say literary studies and Laura or sociology and law, they're very, very different terms of goals and how you go about what you do. So it becomes much harder to blend them and keep it coherent. If we go Back to the interdisciplinarity with um, with sociology again. You recently gave a talk for the uh, Essex Public International Law Lecture Series, and shout out to the conveners, uh, who I'd like to think of as uh, good friends of the uh, of the podcast. And your talk was on the importance of storytelling in international law, and you underlined how in international law it is not so much the best arguments, but the best stories that stick and that arguments are part of a bigger narrative. And storytelling and narrative more generally have uh, an important role to play in sociology, obviously, because sociologists even speak of the narrative turn um, as narratives are a distinct method in, uh, in sociology. And applied to law, we could say that in a way, lawyers construct meaning through the stories they tell and just like regular stories, the more you repeat it, the more it sticks. What differentiates a story in international law from an argument? And are stories just another way of saying that solid legal arguments don't matter as much in the face of power? 
And what does looking at international law through the lens of stories reveal to us? What does it teach us? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I would differentiate argument from storytelling and say that argument is part of the storytelling. So the argument is your logic. It's your, I can't remember the, um, the Latin or is it the Greek, the logos, the pathos and the ethos. It's the logos. It's the logical yeah. side of things. It is one of three facets of a story. Um, you also then have your emotional side and your authority side. And so what a story does is that it has a story that's based on fact as opposed to a fiction. Um, you know, it's going turning away from that question of stories as as we think of them as, you know, the bard telling tall tales and narrative. But I'm talking about like how you how you tell a factual event as a story, mm-hmm. which we do all the time. Um you know, we understand societies by the stories they tell themselves. Um, and the story doesn't just have a logical coherence, but that's the argument. It has a logical coherence. That's your argument side of things. But it also has an emotional hook. It makes you want something. It makes you want to believe. It makes you want to understand. Or in the context of international law, it makes you want to care. It makes you want things to be different. It makes you it makes helps you make sense of the argument. It makes the argument personal. It gives you an emotional connection. A good story doesn't just convince you logically. Um, it also pulls at your heartstrings. Um, and that that matters. But it doesn't just do that and pull at the heartstrings. For a, for a story to also work, it needs authority. And authority is about voice. And so as I've raised in the Q&A section of that that lecture that Megan and Emily um, convened and generously invited me to give, um, there was a question about, well, how do we deal with who doesn't get a voice? And I'm like, well, this is about, you know, in terms of academic work, it's about citation practice. Who are you citing and why? It's about... Who are you listening to and why? And who has a voice in terms of statecraft and international law? It's about, yeah, who who has the the who has the authority to be heard? And so the stories that we hear from the P5 and the Security Council, for example, come with more authority because they're speaking from a position of global social authority. Doesn't make them legitimate or right but it does give them the ability to keep repeating their narrative and have it heard. And so a good story, the better story is one that has all of those elements combined to be not just logically coherent and a stronger, more coherent, more convincing argument. It also has the ability to make people want your argument to be the right one. But it also then has to have this position of social authority for people to hear it to for those other two things to matter. So I think that's what's different from this idea of international law is about argumentation. It is, but that's it's not just that. And I think the history of international law shows all of these things. The history of international law for so long is the history of European colonial domination. 
We know this. This is not a controversial statement now. But you make that statement back in, you know, 1925, that's a very controversial statement because the people who had the authority to speak had convinced everyone that they were doing this for the good of the world. Which, as I said, hindsight, we know that that's just utter rot. <laughs> but the but the but ordinary people on the street who had no connection to it, they wanted to believe that they were their government was doing good things. They want to believe that. And their government has the authority to keep telling them that what they want to believe enough to make it stick. So yeah, it's the better story requires not just a better argument and not just the more strong, coherent, emotional pull. It also requires the voice to be heard. So, yeah, um, I think that's what's the, what differentiates understanding story, um, international law through a lens of storytelling um, than through a lens of argumentation. I think that it's, and I don't think that I don't think that it's saying that legal arguments don't matter in the face of power, but it means that if you don't have a power block, you need to find a way to get enough power, authority, social power and authority to be heard. I think that the, the best example in a study that I've kind of referenced in my, in my book on the Security Council was there was a block of countries who were not happy with multiple things in the ICC, Rome Statute negotiations, so they came together and compromised amongst themselves to speak with a unified voice to suddenly be heard. They generated that positionality that they wouldn't have had individually. And yes, that meant compromise amongst themselves, but it gave them a combined collective voice that could be heard to tell the rest of it, to make the argument and make people care about the argument. So I think that and the question of, well, what does looking at international law through a lens of stories reveal? I think it actually, it makes law human, particularly, like I said, a lot of my work works in security and conflict and the, the, the way people, lawyers discuss this, it's detached, it's abstract, it's theoretical. People are data points. And there's lots of reasons for that that are really human because it's a coping mechanism. Mm. Um, I, I remember when I was at the start of my PhD, I just wrapped up my MPhil project on Somali piracy. Um, I got a call from supervisor who was like, hey, two people who worked for one of your interview participants have just gone been murdered. I need you to go back and check all your data to make sure that you haven't, that you didn't cause a breach that, that got their identities out, that got them killed. Oh my God. And so like, that's really awful. Um, like that's really emotionally awful. Even just little things like that. So yeah, dealing with people's lives and having when that's your day to day, it's really hard to keep reminding yourself that these are people and not data and still be emotionally able to cope. Um, and so most lawyers just lose, lose that human connection. So I think that what it does is it makes this human. So, I mean, for me, I have a tradition when I'm in the city that I, if I'm going, that I will actually go to the war memorials in every city I travel to because a lot of the stuff I deal with is big picture conflict stuff. And I go through and I read 
the names of the people who died to make them human, to remind myself that these are people. These are not just these are not just historic historical data. These are not just legal violations. These are not whatever sanitized term we're talking about. These are people. And these are people who are not here because people with power told a story to other people to 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 other people with no power to convince them to kill them. And yeah. Yeah, all all war is a crime. That's it. And it's a crime committed by politicians who'll never see any sort of accountability. And actually as lawyers, we need to start acknowledging that more. Mm. So we, let's not talk about just war and this and that. All war is a fucking crime. Yeah. Um yeah, this is this is quite a tragic note for 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 a follow-up. Um yeah, I'm wondering if in your view, argumentation and storytelling is something that run in parallel, or is it something that can fluctuate? You know, so when uh, when 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 the authority manifests in a way that is more argumentative or more storytelling like, because I mean, obviously there are conflicting stories that are being told, and obviously the story that does it better, that is more convincing, eventually wins. But I'm also wondering if you can actually tell a story that does not make use of legal arguments at all, but is still positioned as being legal. So this is something that I'm doing for my research now when I try to um, sort of understand and reconstruct um, the uh, Russian legal narratives regarding the Ukrainian invasion. And it it kind of strikes me every time how less, how, yeah, how, how little legal argumentation is there it's all about just telling stories about you know nazism and and so on and so on and so on mm. so how does it yeah how does it, how does it work in your in your view okay and so i think that it's because argument is a part of the story so it depends on how you're going to wait what matters in the story that you're telling when you're telling the story um and so in the context of russia they're, they're it's also a question of who's the audience, because there's never just one audience. Um, and at this stage, like, the, the, the audience for Russia is the internal audience. It's their own people. And so they don't need to make legal arguments. They need to get people willing to go and be kill and be killed for Putin's psychosis. Um, so they don't need to make legal arguments. What they're doing is making arguments to sell a war to a population. And that requires an emotional plea more than anything else. Um, but early on, they, they were trying to make many legal arguments to try and convince the world to not to not support Ukraine because they, their primary audience was not internal. It was, ex it was external to try and create an environment where they didn't, where Ukraine was isolated. And so you saw more, my understanding and what have you of it, and it's not going to be as good as yours, but my understanding is we saw a lot more legal in their arguments, even though the arguments were bad, but they were trying a lot more because their audience was external. They'd given up on an external audience. They haven't only have an internal audience now to find more people to throw into a meat grinder. Yeah, it's... That, that makes that, a lot of sense. Does that answer? Does that answer the question? Like I think, no, no, that, no. yeah, like 
That does make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I wouldn't say that Russia necessarily discards the external audience completely. And there is still some sort of a continuous legal narrative that it tries to, to yeah, be pushing. Yeah, it, it's... It's still there, but it's minimized. It's it, it is no longer the focus of the narrative because it's no because they know that they've lost that, so they're appealing to the emotional. So, but moving on to 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 other things, you've been called international Twitter cool queer aunt, which comes with a great responsibility, absolutely. And so, my question is about all the queer stuff here. So what queer theory does can bring for international law on issues regarding gender and sexuality or in protection of queer individuals and communities is pretty obvious. And if any of our listeners disagree, they should check out your encyclopedia entry on queer approaches to international adjudication in the Max Planck Encyclopedia on International Law with uh, John Stack. But what is less obvious is what can it bring to the rest of international law, to the theory of international law? Can we apply the fluidity of gender to notions like sovereignty, custom international law, use organs, and so on? So what does queering international law mean? What it does? Yeah, okay. So this is actually a really great question because there's a real schism between how queer theorists understand what we're doing and how everyone else understands it. So... Most people hear queer theory and what have you and think it's basically it's about queer people, it's about queer subjects. We're talking we're talking at a social theory level about queer subjects. And kind of often there's an overlap, but that's not that's not it at all. Like that's just no, it's that's like saying that feminist theory is about women, women talking to other women about women things. And you know, for first wave feminism and to a lesser degree, second wave feminism, sure. But that was also super bioessentialist and kind of in hindsight really bad, even though it was really important at the time. We've moved on, unless of course you're a turf. Um, but so from third wave onwards, it started being more about how do we understand notions of feminism became more about how do we understand notions of social construction, of things like gender and gender roles, and how do we understand social structures around patriarchy and what that does to everyone in society, not just to women, but what does that do to men who don't fit what's expected of them as men and things like that. That's kind of what feminism has become about, but most people still who aren't doing feminist theory and aren't first in it still think that it's women talking to other women about women things. And I'm just going to take a breath whenever I hear that because, you know, on my honour, I am not a violent woman, but... Um, <laughs> And so queer theory is, has that kind of same problem. So queer theory, and this is also because queer is a really complex word. Queer has like four meanings depending on context. It is a collective noun for the rainbow community. I the Depending on what acronym you use, I use quilt bag. So queer, unsure and uncertain, uh, intersexed. Uh, lesbian, trans, bi, ace and agender, gay, plus, so a collection of everyone else within that. It's I use quilt bag because it's A, the most inclusive, and B, the easiest to say. Um, so that's my personal position. So it's become a collective noun as a shorthand for whatever your preferred acronym for the queer community is. Um, it's an individual identity noun. So it's also um, 
for people who don't fit, who are who are ac across multiple identities in the community, or don't feel that they fit into any one particular identity, they often just use queer as a self-identifier. So I would call myself a queer woman, um, but like I'm an I, I'm an ace lesbian kind of thing. But that's really word that's really complex and hard to say. So I just go with I'm queer. Much easier, much simpler. That. Um, it's also an adjective, although that's pretty much only in a pejorative sense. So that generally doesn't get used. Um, and the important one for what we're talking about here is that queer is a verb. You queer things. And that comes from the origin of to make strange. So the act of queering international law is to make strange international law. So the act of queering international law be it on sovereignty, be it on custom, be it on use Kogans, be it on Security Council interpretations of threat to the peace, is to sit there and go, well, what assumptions are we bringing to this question? And are they valid? Are they helpful? Are they re actually really problematic? And how could we look at it differently? And so I haven't, ex there's nothing explicit in my Security Council book that was published, what, almost four years ago now and dear god that seems like a long time it's kind of that but i would call that a very much a queer theory analysis of the security council because i looked at all of the legal scholarship on threat to the peace and everyone's written like two paragraphs that says this this phrase cannot be defined and it was intentionally left undefined in the drafting and so we're just going to move on it's undefinable and i went well really that's kind of assuming that things are exactly the same as they were in 45 when it was drafted and we have no other evidence. That's the base, they're your base assumptions. So I went, really? And I'm like, okay, well, how can I look at this differently? And that's when I kind of then form this whole coherent chapter on a theory chapter on law as a language rather than law as a discipline and did all of that. But that's all just, I was querying threat to the peace. Um, I was making strange this all the assumptions that we carry about threat to the peace and saying, well, how can we look at it differently? And does looking at it differently give us better insight? And so, yeah, we can totally queer all of these things. And Claire and O'Hara and I, we, we ran a, a, a workshop, book workshop for um, queering international law um, in November last year. We had scholars, both senior and junior from all around the world come to Melbourne. We had a two-day workshop where we talked about their, their papers. So we had queering international environmental law. We had queer approaches to international cultural heritage law, queer approaches to how do we understand travaux, um, queer, queer approaches to um, uh, naval warfare and naval warfare assets, um, all because we're like, we're making strange. What are our assumptions about how law operates here? And can we look at that differently? We had, yeah, so it's a case of all of these things, and we've actually just submitted the um, the book proposal for that for a two-volume um, with 23 chapters on on queering international law. Yeah, like it's a case of people outside of the queer spaces think that we're just queer people talking to other queer people about queer things, when really queer theory, you, you don't, like most people who do queer theory are queer, but you don't have to be. You know, I thought, I think Diane Otto, who, you know, was a wonderful mentor to me and a wonderful mentor to so many people in the queer theory and queer international law spaces, put it best in her chapter in Queering International Law in her intro, where she talks about queerness as curiosity. This 
almost hedonistic, playful curiosity to go, well, really? Let's think about this. Let's look and see. Let's find out. Let's make it strange. And yeah, when we took, so when, when queer theorists talk about queering things, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we do this? And I think that actually comes through in the second half of the Max Planck paper, um, where we look at, well, what would the queer judge look like? Where we have this section where we talk about, well, what would the queer judge look like? Can we even have a queer judge? Let's talk about this. And Joanne's expanded that section into what will hopefully be a chapter in the book that Claire and I are editing together on queering international law. But it's a case of it's so much, so much bigger. And I find it really interesting is that because of this questioning of assumptions, we're actually seeing a lot of pushback in mainstream feminist law, which was the birthplace of queer theory against queer theory um, from mainstream feminist theory in law, um, a lot of pushback because there's this undermining, the entire premise of queer theory is, well, let's call into question our assumptions, whereas too much feminist international law is bedded in second wave feminist bioessentialism around the the subject of the woman, um, which for the, like, I hopefully it'll, it'll come out soon enough for the Oxford Handbook on Women in International Law. I've wrote a chapter with Stacey Henderson and Joanne again, looking at the, the actual counterproductive nature of that bioessentialist assumptions about who women are in, in international law and how that's actually harming, harming women now. While it was important when feminist international law was in its infancy in the early 90s, it's actually now detrimental to women's interests because it pigeonholes women into small categories of what we are able to do rather than providing women with full capacity and agency. So, and that's a queer theory analysis of the situation, but because that's scary, that removes boundaries, that removes limits. It's a lot of pushback from mainstream feminist international legal theory people against queer theory because that's scary. That that actually undermines that narrative that's wedded mostly through the women, peace and security agenda of women are peace bringers, women are this, women are that, which is like, well, which woman? I mean, and like I would certainly say there's nothing, there was nothing peaceful about Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. I was thinking the exact same thing right now. <laughs> nothing yeah. thinking about Margaret Thatcher either, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. And so all of these things, it relies upon a stereotyping tropey narrative that makes it easy to advance an argument. But it actually, in the long run, that argument harms all women because it means that we are a pigeonhole into these narrow spaces where we're permitted. And queer theory says, nah, fuck that. Fuck your assumptions. Um, and so I'm really excited about um, uh, Juliana, the wonderful PhD candidate um, at the Geneva Institute who I mentored um, through the Ansel uh, Gender and Sexuality and International Law Interest Groups Mentoring Program, who's also got a chapter in the Queering International Law um, project that Claire Wynne and I are doing 
where she looks at this where we need to stop understanding queer theory as uh, um, an expansion of feminist theory and because feminists reject that premise and start seeing f- queer theory as a rupture from feminist theory and it's a really cool chapter and you should definitely if you if you bump into her ask her about that because it's really cool and she's doing some really cool work on this space talking about making international law strange this is going to be really strange and really interdisciplinary in a in a new way how does being a french trained pastry chef inform how you do research and how okay. does it inform doing research in law more specifically okay so yes i'm in my career even before i went to university i was a la patissière for about 10 years um in various restaurants in sydney um very much a french trained pastry chef even even though it was in australia it was all in french restaurants with top french chefs so um with a woman who kind of did most of my pastry chef training was michelle rue's head pastry chef at the waterside for five years so in terms of genealogy of pastry chefs like michelle rue is kind of my grandfather of pastry chefing um so um for me it's everything it informs everything um I mentioned earlier on uh, that I'm a very ordered person. That's because I was a pastry chef. It requires order. It requires precision. It requires discipline. More so than regular cooking. Regular cooking, you can be a bit more swashbuckly. You can make, you can recover your mistakes. You can kind of keep going and make it work. You can salvage. You can Things can still work even if you make a mistake. Most pastry work, throw it out, start again. Mistake is done. So I'm precise. I'm precise and ordered. I know everything I'm going to do before I sit down to do it because I can't do it unless I know what I'm going to do because I need to know what it is. So it means I spend a lot of time when the thing people think I'm not working, where I'm literally sitting there with my research problem, rotating it in my head in three dimensions trying to work out how it all fits together before I even sit down to do any writing. I can't write until I've worked that out because that's kind of my foundation. My foundation is pastry work. My foundation is you need to have everything laid out, everything organized and know everything you were going to do at every step of the way before you start. Otherwise, you will make when you make a mistake, you will need to throw it out and start again. And that's not the case with writing and research, but it also kind of is. Because of that process, I can't write to think. It doesn't work for me. I can't get my head around the concept of writing to think. I think to think. Um, and I write once I've thought. Once I've thought and once I know what I'm doing, then I write. And I'm very precise. I edit as I go. Um, I will write two sentences and then read it back in the context of everything I've done, make sure it's right, and then move on. This is why I... Basically, I submit for first drafts for peer review. And yes, there's typos that need tidying up, but I mostly my revisions are please explain sociological theory because I'm a lawyer and I don't understand what you're doing here in every single paper. I'm explaining first year sociology theory is almost every revision I'm asked to do. But my first drafts get accepted because I'm methodical. My first drafts would be what most people's final drafts are because I spend all my time thinking. I have had papers that I've sat rotating in my head in three dimensions trying to work out how it fits for a year and a half before I could write it. I've had other papers that 
it all clicked in about two days and I wrote it in two days. That foundation for me of being a pastry chef is part of that question of precision. And it's also a question of nuance and precision and all of those things, but also that order, the orderly nature of how you do things. So that's that's very important to me. Um, that's how it informs how I do my research. Uh, that's a really personal thing. That's not really a generalizable thing. I'm not suggesting that other, that, should, that other people should research that way because I appreciate that for most people, that's going to be the most terrifying thing to think about having a paper that you're struggling with sit in your head, perpetually being rotated for a year and a half while you're doing everything. Like I'm walking my dog, that paper is just churning over. I'm watching TV, it's churning over. I'm having dinner with my partner, it's still churning. That's just how I work. But in terms of what does it mean for other people being researched, so there are two ways you can learn how to cook. You can learn recipes. You can get a recipe, you can find a recipe, you can go follow the steps and have food. Great, works perfectly. And it's not a bad system. You will, you will become a pretty decent and competent cook repeating that method of learn recipe, do recipe, keep going. Or you can learn the chemistry about why a recipe works. And this is how I was trained. So while I was while I was an apprentice and spending most of my days um, doing uh, Brunoise dice of onions and juliennes of carrots and really boring, mind-numbing stuff, I'd then spend my evenings and my breaks reading food science textbooks um, and understanding why does an egg, when com- egg yolk when combined with liquid thicken but not split why does if you do something if you cook it too far why does it split what's the temperature variable why does sugar at 116 degrees behave differently to sugar at 145 degrees and what does that difference mean and why and so i learned the science of food the chemistry of food because so i you know and so i don't use recipes i kind of i I write my own recipes i kind of note it down so i remember what i'm doing and I found out that that terrifies apprentices when you're like, no, I didn't like that one. I'm going to change it for, change it for the um for the dinner service. And like, oh, what what's what do you recipe do you want me to use? I'm like, yeah, I'm still working it out now. I'll tell you in about half an hour when I've when I've worked out what I want to do. And apparently that terrifies apprentices. But also I remember it terrifying me when I was an apprentice and the head chef did it to me. But in translating that to what does that mean for research and what does that mean for law? You can do two things with law. You can learn the law. You can learn how to how to how to Read the law and apply it. And that'll make you a really competent lawyer, a really good legal researcher. You'll learn, you'll learn how to find where the law is. You'll learn how to find how it applies. You'll learn how to make it happen. And you will do good, good legal analysis. But when once you hit a point where there is no clear law, you actually will be you you you'll be floundering. You might, but there's no law. I can't do anything. Or you can learn why the law operates in the ways it does and how it gets shaped and how it gets made and why it gets made that way and why societies do law that way and all of those things. And when you hit this point where there isn't there isn't a law written, there isn't a clear recipe for whatever you're trying problem you're trying to solve, you can make one up. Um, and so that's what it has everything to do with research. You can be a really good, competent researcher doing good, solid case analysis, treaty analysis, all of those things, but never learning 
the underlying foundations, social foundations that create those things. Or you can learn all of the underpinning stuff and kind of have all of those trees and what have you as more just they're there and you'll reference them as you need to to help people understand what you're doing. But you're extrapolating on base principles that inform those that inform those documents, not the documents themselves. You go the level underneath. And my goodness, the level of creativity you can come up with there and the level of insight you can get is so much higher. What we have left is the speed round, which are the three questions we ask every um, guest who comes on the show. Uh, and the first one is, what drives you to do what you do, academically speaking? What's the driving force behind you? Usually I'm really fucking angry. <laughs> I get really fucking angry about something. And so I it sits in my brain until I work out what I want to say. And then I, I by the time I get to a point where I know what I want to say, um, I've managed to temper that anger and make it uh, make it socially acceptable to say to say it in how I say it. Um, the second question is, what is something you struggle with? Fair enough. I struggle with the fact that I can't. I perpetually feel unproductive. Um, I have sp a spinal disability, and I know how much more work I could do if I wasn't dealing with chronic pain related to a spinal disability. And so I always feel like I'm never doing enough work because I know I could do more if I wasn't disabled. I've been informed that apparently I'm quite prolific, but I always feel like I'm never doing enough, um, which is not healthy. Um, and I'm having to work on that. But yeah, I because I know that if I wasn't dealing with chronic impairments from, from a spinal disability, I'd probably get about twice as much done in the same time. That's I, a real struggle. Can I flip around that answer and say maybe what you're struggling with is more ableism than... Uh, the chronic pain because if our world was better designed uh, for this then this wouldn't be such a struggle so well as I said it's it's internalized ableism because I, I know I could do more if I wasn't disabled and it's that internal struggle of I shouldn't feel that way because I'm doing enough and I'm doing very good work and it, I know and, and I know logically that yeah. it's enough but emotion emotionally I'm not operating at 100% ever. And last but not least, what is a book or an article you think everyone should read? 84K by Claire North. First of all, Claire is a phenomenal author. She writes beautifully. It was very reminiscent of reading Michael Ondaatje's work for me, reading 84K particularly. But she has written in a near-future science fiction dystopia. So apart from the fact that she's just delightful, and she's a phenomenal author. She's write, written this book that's 84 chapters, but they're vignettes that all splice together in the end to form a full coherent narrative about a world a, a world where neoliberal capitalism has finally achieved its endpoint and colonized the law and what that does to society. And it's tragic, it's heartbreaking but her writing is beautiful and it's really poignant as we keep watching everything that's happening in the world and it'll communicate this harm to people better than any non-fiction text could. Beautiful. It's a better story. <laughs> full circle for this episode. Yeah, full circle completely. That, I guess, concludes our episode. Dr. Thompson for the Page, thank you so much for coming. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me along and for having this chat with me. I've really enjoyed it.